Well, if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God, actually to Psalm 34. We're in the middle of a topical series of sermons on the fear of the Lord. And we've seen already, you remember from the book of Ecclesiastes, that the fear of the Lord is the duty of all men. It's the, it's the way that we… It's the, it's the glue that holds all of the meaningless parts of life together. Life in this world under heaven and above the grave can seem meaningless and vain, an empty kind of… It seems… It feels a little bit like a little boy chasing soap bubbles, and we think we know what life's all about, and we get our hands on it, and then it slips through our fingers. And the fear of God, Solomon says, is the is the one thing that holds all of the disparate pieces of life together and gives them meaning and substance and purpose and life. And then we saw in our next sermon from Proverbs 1 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, not just the beginning of wisdom, that if you want to know anything for sure, you must begin with a certain reference point that you can be sure of, a firm ground beneath your feet that won't give way. And most human beings start with themselves and their eyes and their minds and their perception and their experience and their reason. But that's a, that is not a firm enough ground on which to stand. If there's not ground beneath the mind, if there's not a mind beneath the mind of men and our mind is just the, the random product of chemical reactions, it's not really a very secure foundation. And Solomon says, the fear of the Lord, beginning with God, is the foundation of knowledge. If you don't start with Him, you can never be certain of anything. And so, it's no surprise, in a culture the people refuse to begin with God, they end up uncertain even of their own gender, and everything becomes confused, and there's no truth and no solid ground for anyone anywhere to stand. Well, this morning, I want to look at Psalm 34 and David's meditation in a moment of particular disaster in his own life. And we'll see in this psalm that the fear of the Lord is really the gist of true piety. And we'll probably look at this psalm over a couple of weeks because there's not enough time this morning to deal with it all. Um, but we'll see this morning that the fear of the Lord is the experiential center that really drives the Christian life. Listen to the Word of God then as we are taught by the Holy Spirit. A psalm of David, when he changed his taste, literally, before Abimelech, when he feigned madness, is what some of your translations will say, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those, or better, they, the fears in the Hebrew, look to Him and are radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, 
for to those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against evil, sorry, is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. Well, we all long for a good scare, the kind of scare that is both good and safe, the kind of scare that leaves us feeling, well, if I can survive that, I can face anything. And you see that kind of attitude in the adrenaline junkie as he jumps out of a plane and finds himself at the safe end of a parachute, or when you go to a roller coaster park and uh, enjoy the thrill, the safe thrill of the roller coaster. We see it too when we're on top of a high building, even people like me who are terrified of heights, we have this urge to look over the edge and feel the bottom fall out of our tummies. We see it also in the movie theaters. We love thrillers and, and scary movies where the monsters seem real, but the dangers seem, well, pretend. We enjoy feeling frightened out of our depth, overwhelmed. Why? Where does that yearning come from? Some would say we, we, we enjoy feeling frightened because it makes us feel alive. That's true. I actually think there's a deeper reason that there's a longing in our hearts for home in the presence of God, where we are overwhelmed with His grandeur and His glory and His majesty, where all the fears are good and the danger is safe. We long to be back in Eden in that overwhelming sense of God and the wonderment of His presence. And the nearest thing that people get on earth to that yearning is whenever we're standing on a starry night looking up at the glory of the cosmos. So, you're walking through Yosemite National Park, and you see Half Dome, or the 2,000 feet of granite that's El Capitan, or the Grand Canyon. And 
we see here and there the wonders that litter the world. It's like what Chesterton said, the world will not starve for want of wonders, but for want of wonderment. Of course, though, most people fail to connect the dots back to the Creator. But that's where the, the yearning for fear comes from, that it makes us feel alive, yes. And we sometimes speak that, oh, that scared the life out of me, but actually we want something to scare the life into us. And that sense of wonderment, that sense of being overwhelmed by something that's too big for us to get a handle on, too big to get our arms around, that sense of grandeur in the presence of God is what the Bible means when it speaks of the fear of God. And it's the chief lesson that David wants to teach us this morning as he hightails it out of Gath and writes Psalm 34. David's up to his neck in trouble. You remember it all began when he killed Goliath. The woman sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. And Saul already knew, of course, that the kingdom was going to be taken away from him. And so David was the obvious successor, and so Saul determined to assassinate David. And he, he mobilized all of the machinery of the deep state to bring David down, the secret police, the army, even Michael, David's wife, and he tried to get Jonathan as well to work behind the scenes to bring David down. And David is desperate, and he flees to Gath, which was a strange place to flee because that, of course, was Goliath's hometown. I mean, of course, you'd be recognized. It'd be like Donald Trump trying to hide at the Democratic National Convention. Not a good place to hide if you're the orange man bad. But um, nonetheless, David thought, I'll hide in plain sight. Maybe they won't recognize me, but they did. And so David's in the street in Gath, and people start pointing, and then a crowd gathers, not a friendly crowd. It's like um, the scenes you've seen maybe in Iran when an American flag is produced and the crowd of rabid Arabs gather around the flag and tearing it apart and pouring gasoline on it. That's David. He's being torn to shreds, fists raining down upon him. He sucker punched, falls to the ground. The feet turn into, the, the hands turn into feet. He's being kicked from all sides. He's half conscious. He's dragged, barely recognizable through the streets of, of Gath to Ahimelech's throne room. By the time he gets there, his eyes are swollen shut, his mouth, his lips are bloated, his hair is matted with blood, his teeth maybe are chipped, and he's in pretty bad shape. And the crowd pull him in before Ahimelech, the king of the Philistines, and they throw David down like a bag of trash on the throne room floor. And they're very proud of themselves. They think they've done something amazing. And Himalek goes, what are you, who's this? And they said, it's David, the giant killer. And Himalek goes, what? And David realizes he's in trouble, and he does the only thing he could do was he pretends to be mad. He goes a whole nine yards. He foams at the mouth, scratches, laughs, gibbers, and yells like an animal. 
And Ahimelech goes, are you nuts? That's not David. He's crazy. And I've got enough people like that in my retinue as it is. And the language is very, very violent. Um, Ahimelech drives David out of his presence. The same word used of God, driving Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden in uh, Genesis chapter 3. And David here now hightails it out of Gath. And as he does so, he grabs the back of a napkin, or maybe the back of an envelope from one of his men, and starts to write a psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm that's poetic, genius. It's an acrostic, so every subsequent verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, except for two. He doesn't find a space for the sixth letter, Vav, in the Hebrew alphabet, and the letter P occurs twice, where it should do in the middle of the psalm, and where, again, at the last verse of the psalm ends with P. It's called a broken acrostic. And it's actually a beautiful thing because it shows you the, the humanness of Scripture as well as its divinity. The Bible is like Jesus. It's fully divine, fully human. It's God's book. Every word is from God. But it's also every word from David and Paul and Peter and James and Isaiah and Amos. And these men write reflecting their personalities, their genius, their education level. Isaiah is the highbrow Hebrew prophet from the royal throne room, and Amos is a farmer, sycamore tree pruner. And their Hebrew is different, right? Peter is different from Paul and Luke and so forth and so on. James writes like Jesus, lots of earthy pictures and images. Must have been the way Joseph taught maybe in family worship. But David here writes a broken acrostic. And you can imagine some old woman in the synagogue saying, why didn't you get to do it properly? I mean, there's, there's no vav and P occurs twice. And David, I imagine, would say, give me a break. I was running for my life from Jerusalem, from, the, from Gath, Himalek's behind me, Saul's ahead of me, enemies all around me. It was the best I could do, okay? Um, but it's a beautiful picture of the humanness of Scripture, even in the broken acrostic. That doesn't quite fit, but reflects the mind and the heart and the troubles of David. But that's the point, isn't it? Psalm 34 reflects David's situation and his soul. And what you see, if you stand back and look at the whole psalm, and I've preached this psalm before, and you can find that online um, elsewhere, but what you see is a profoundly God-centered soul. You know, David pauses, and he pauses not to panic, but to praise, to worship. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. What David is saying is, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. Now is a time for worship. In sunshine and shadow, in success and victory, in defeat and disaster, in sickness and in health, I will worship God. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Is that the way you respond to trouble? It's not the way I normally respond to trouble. I'm much better at panicking than praising. 
But, but David's vision of God fuels his worship. We'll come back to that again in a second. So, he's profoundly God-centered. He's also profoundly other-centered. He's not focused upon himself and his troubles, which are considerable. He's actually focused on other people around about him. Four times in the psalm, his desire to worship God becomes evangelical. It goes viral. It reaches out to all of his men, and it reaches down through the ages to all of you this morning. Verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. It's not enough for David that he is worshiping God. He wants you to join him. Magnify the Lord with me. Then in verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the mountain's refuge. Magnify, taste. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear Him, they have no lack. So I keep on reverting to the New American Standard that I have memorized, and it, it wigs me out when I read the ESV because it's good, but it just, it's not what I've memorized. And then... Um, then down in verse 11, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So, in those four areas, magnify, taste, fear the Lord, and then come and learn how to live a life of the fear of God. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit, depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. David's reaching out to you. He wants you to learn the lessons God has taught him in this moment of disaster. It's interesting, the verb taste here is the same word of David when he changed his behavior. The Hebrew is taste. And that's got to be it's an unusual way of saying he feigned madness, which he did and which he means. But I think what David's getting at is, don't stand in awe of my acting skills, right? Stand in awe of my God. I don't want you to taste how good an actor I am. I want you to t- taste how good God is. He's the secret of my success He is the one who delivered me from this mess. Now, as you look at these four imperatives in Psalm 34, magnify, taste, fear, and learn to live, essentially, in verse 11 and 12, it occurs to me they build off one another. As you magnify God in your mind, that you learn to taste, to experience Him in your soul. And as you experience Him in your soul, you then learn to fear Him in your heart. And as you fear Him in your heart, you learn to practice that fear in your life. They build off one another. And that's really the point I want to make this morning as we walk through this psalm. So, this life of the fear of God begins by magnifying the Lord in our minds. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. Now, what's it mean to magnify God? Well, if you think about it, okay, there are two ways to magnify something. You've got the microscope and the telescope. The microscope takes something very small and makes it look much bigger than it really is right? Microscope. Like, it'll take the face of a wasp and make it look like a huge monster, much bigger than it really is. The telescope, it's similar but different. It takes something that's similarly very small but is also very, very far away, and it makes it bigger in order to give you a sense of just how big it really is, because you're currently underestimating it. Like, 
Betelgeuse, which is a star. It's actually the second brightest star in the night sky. You've all seen it. It's just a little speck. But it's actually quite big. And by quite big, I mean its diameter is 562 million miles wide. It's a star like our sun. It's big, though. Our sun is 93 million miles away from us. So do the math if you're following me. Our sun is 93 million miles away from us. And our sun is 27 million times bigger than the earth. But it's 93 million miles away from us. And Betelgeuse is 562 million miles wide. That means if Betelgeuse was where our sun is, we would not only be inside the flames of that sun, we'd be nearer the middle of the sun than the edge. It's huge. Tiny white spot in the night sky. Bright spot, but tiny spot. And David says we need, if you want to, if you want to, fear God properly, it begins in your mind and in your mouth as you magnify God. Because the problem in life is the reason why we panic in trouble rather than praise is because our troubles seem big and our God seems small. And magnifying God is how you reverse that. Where you make God, you get some idea of how massive a being God is. And when you have that in your mind, it shrinks your troubles down to their true size. Do you have any idea of how great God is? Do you know what it is to stand in awe of Him? Chesterton is right. The world will never starve for wonders, but just for wonderment. The greatness of a God who can speak a planet, a million, or a sun, a mi- 562 million miles wide into his breathtaking. And he made it with words. I love the way the Hebrew in Genesis 1, it says, and, and, and he made the stars, and also the stars. It's just like, he just relegates it to two Hebrew words in a sentence, and the stars. So, magnifying the Lord is important because it's as you magnify Him that you learn to taste Him. Verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Now, that's an experiential word. Magnifying is a word in your mind, as it were. You think big thoughts about God. Tasting is a word of experience. You can taste it. And David wants you to taste of the goodness of God. So we've gone from the intellectual exercise of magnification to the experiential delight of tasting. Now, what's interesting is when you taste God, David wants you to taste the goodness of God. That, that David's experience of God is uniformly good. There's no bitterness. It's not like Diet Coke where you drink it and he goes, it tastes sweet. Then you go, mm, not so much. It's always that aftertaste of a Spartan. 
like the advertisement, I said this before, I think, recently here, I forget, but, you know, I can't believe it's not butter. It's the daftest product in all the world. Anyone with two taste buds still functioning could taste that thing and know it's not butter immediately. It doesn't look like butter, doesn't spread like butter, and doesn't taste like butter. It's horrible stuff. And it certainly isn't curry gold. Anyway, but to tasting it. But David's taste of God is sweet. It's good. There's no harshness. There's no sourness in it. For too many Christians, that's not the case. Too many Christians in the Reformed Church, I think, have a negative view of God. He's bitter. He's angry. He's a nitpicker. It's like the man in Matthew 25. You remember the one talent man whenever the, Jesus comes around and he says, what have you done with your talent? I buried it in the ground. Why? I knew you were a harsh master. You reap what you have not sown and so forth and so on. And the whole, his whole vision of God was warped and it warped his life, his attitude, and his eternity. His vision of God was completely wrong. It's like that girl that Sam Storm described in his book, The Singing God, which is a wonderful book. And in that book, he describes this girl who he was pastoring and shepherding in his congregation, and he asked her, when God looks at you, what's he feel? And she said, oh, that's easy. He feels disappointed. I should be so much better than I am, so much so further on than I am. Is that the way you think of God? Is that the way you think God thinks of you? Disappointed? Not good enough? That's not David's vision of God, and it's so important that we get this straight and get this down. David tastes God, and God is good. What do we mean when we say God is good? It's an interesting statement. It's, what the, it's actually where the term God comes from. It's a contraction of good. He is the good, the summum bonum, the Father said, the, the sum of all goodness. That every goodness, every good thing in creation is a, a scattering of the perfections of God, a gift of the perfections of God. So, goodness, you might say, is the it's, it's, it's the perfections of God that He's light and no darkness. He's sweetness and no bitterness. He is justice and no injustice. He is, he is beauty without any ugliness, right? He's perfect. But it's, it's more than that. It's not just that God's some kind of stagnant puddle or pool of perfection in heaven like an OR where dirty things can't go, shut off and cut off. No, the goodness of God is His perfections overflowing constantly. Is that God maintains a posture of overflowing perfection toward this world. His nature is to bless people who taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
It's the first chapter of the Bible when God created the universe initially. It was good and very good. A husband loving his wife and being loved back by her. Perfect intimacy without fear of being a letdown. Birds singing in the morning, hymning the dawn chorus. The laughter of a three-month-old child on his grandmother's lap. The taste of a ripe peach. Not one of those Walmart peaches, you understand, that are as tasteless as a turnip. But one you get in Georgia, you bite into it, and it just the juices burst all over your face and down in your shirt. The taste of a filet mignon steak, medium rare, or however you like yours done. But medium rare is the best. But it just tastes, if I was a cow, that's the way I'd want to go. <laughs> it just tastes so good, right? It's beautiful. That God, God could have designed you to, 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 to get nutrition from used motor oil. But He designed you to enjoy toast with butter, Irish butter, drizzled over it. And it is, the taste is beautiful, right? It's, it's one of all those tastes that God made. Or when you, you're, someone you love t- touches the back of your neck and tickles your back of your neck, and you feel that, you say, oh, God could have made your neck to feel nothing, like this be as senseless as this water bottle. But He, 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 he gives you the, the ability to be tickled. The smell of freshly mown grass, a cool breeze on a hot day. These are all gifts of the goodness of God. The smell of a field when it's been dry for weeks and rain pours down, and the smell of fresh rain. Those are the drops of God's goodness. But He is the ocean without bottom or shore, and it's constantly cascading down. And the great evidence, of course, of God's goodness is His patience toward this world. He looks at this world, and He, he sends the sun on the righteous and the wicked, and the rain to fall on the, on, the, on the good and the evil. He's a merciful God. And He looks at this world that's responding to Him with hatred and malice and envy and bitterness. We will not serve you. We'll not value your image. We'll wipe out your image at every moment we can get a chance to. We will not have your Son to reign over us, and God sends His Son into this world anyway. The great evidence of, this, of the goodness of God at the foot of the cross that Jesus, the Son of God, is sent into this world not to judge the world, but to save the world. Not to condemn the world, but to redeem the world. And why did God send His Son? because He's good, because He loves. Why did God love? It wasn't because you are good. See, God's love is different from ours. Our love has to be attracted toward beauty and goodness and truth. God's love flows from goodness and beauty and truth. There's nothing in you to attract God to Him, but there's so much goodness in God that He'll love you anyway, because that's His nature. 
He's a God of love who continually gives. I love the way James puts it in James 1. He who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives. Literally, let him ask of the continually giving God to all liberally and without reproach. That God is the God who has a posture of open-handed generosity to an ungrateful world. And it's, it's all goodness I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. All my fears. Not just some of them or most of them, but all of them. They, literally in the Hebrew, there's no those. They look to Him and are radiant. The fears are dark and discouraged and depressed. And they lift their eyes and they look to God and the light comes on. And their faces will never be ashamed. When I was a child, there was a show I watched called Super... uh, um, forgotten the name of it now, um, superstars. And it was all of these sports personalities, gymnasts and everything else. Um, and they would go and they would do kind of weird obstacle races and different things. And it's on TV. And most of the time, the events that were done had no connection to what they were good at. And people from all kinds of sports came, golfers and everybody. But one time, remember, there was a BMX star, and he was my hero, and I've actually forgotten his name, but he was one of the best BMXers, and he was my, he, I, I idolized him, so I've forgotten his name, which is a lesson there, I think. Anyway, but anyway, so uh, he was on this show, and my dad and I were watching it, and the last race of the show, there was a relay race, and the last leg of the relay race was a bicycle race, and they had him, my BMX hero, be on the last leg, and I, I was like, I was telling my dad, we're going to win. My team's going to win this. We're going to win this. There's no problem. He has this all sewn up. And dad chuckles, we'll see, son. So the race goes on, and it gets to the end, and it's neck and neck, the different teams racing. And my hero, the bike's there. Someone's holding the bike. It's a racing bike. He jumps onto the bike, real grace and pause. But as he jumps on, he somehow pressed the front brake of the bike and goes head over heels and face plants on the concrete. There's blood, teeth everywhere. And my dad almost fell off the chair laughing, and I was so ashamed. I had put my confidence in that man. He let me down on a bike. I mean, it was a bike. It's his, it's his event over the handlebars, be beaten by some gymnast. Anyway, um, no offense to gymnasts, but it was really embarrassing. So then, they, my fears looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. You never look to God and come away ashamed that you did. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And God is mobile. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. It's the, the mobile presence of God that went with Israel through the wilderness. David's running in the wilderness, and he remembers God will be with me as he was with Israel. This is the goodness of God, and he tastes it. And then he goes on to taste. Does God taste sweet to you, or is there bitterness in your your vision of God? You're always wanting more. You do your best, you come back, and it's more. Like the, the king in the Rumpelstiltskin, where the, 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 the daughter has got to always make more gold out of straw. Is that your vision of God? It's not David's vision of God. 
and then we fear Him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who fears, who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Now, do you see the point here? The fear of the Lord, David's speaking about the fear of God, but it's, it's not a terror of God. It's not, it's not, um, he's discussing the fear of God in the context of the tasting the goodness of God. Because the true fear of a son of God isn't bound up with the horror of God's judgment. We don't fear God because he's, he, wipes, he wipes people off the face of the earth and reduces cities to dust. We fear God because He's so good. It's like when you fall in love with someone, a beautiful young girl or a handsome man, and you're in love with them, and you, want, you don't want to do anything stupid before them. Not because their anger is so horrible, but because they're so beautiful, so wonderful. You want them to love you because you love them. That's a little bit of what it means to fear God. Not that we're trying to get God to love us, you understand, but there's a sad sense. It's His beauty. It's the spirit of um, Huin in The Horse and His Boy. You remember the story, Bree is a Narnian horse, a talking horse. She pretended he couldn't talk because he was living out of Narnia. And Bree, you remember, is on his way back to Narnia with Avarice, his rider, and Wynne is with them as well. And they're asking, Avarice and Wynne are asking Bree, he's a bit of a pompous horse, but asking Bree about Narnia. And Bree doesn't want to go back because his horse's tail's been cut and it's ugly. And all the horses in Narnia have got beautiful tails. And uh, he's very self-conscious about his tail. And then they notice, when asks him, and Avarice too, you always talk about, you always swear by the mane of Aslan. Who's Aslan? And so Bree launches into this long pontification about Aslan. That Aslan is this lion. And Wynne goes, he's a lion? And Bree said, no, 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 it's a metaphor. He's not, he's not really a lion. You know, uh, he's... He's fierce like a lion, and brave like a lion, and strong like he's not really a lion. I mean, if he's a lion, he'd be like a beast like us with paws and whiskers and so forth. And what, as, as Bree is pontificating, he doesn't realize he's his back's to this wall, and Wynne and Avarice are facing Bree, and Wynne and Avarice suddenly go, because this huge lion, Aslan, jumps up on top of the wall, and Bree can't see this. It's behind him. And Bree's pontificating, and Aslan jumps down beside Bree. And as Bree's talking, Aslan's very quietly walking up to him. And Bree's getting to the point where he says, like, if he, was an, if, he was an, if he was a real lion, he'd have, like, paws. He'd be a beast like us. He'd have whiskers. And just when he says whiskers, one of the whiskers touches Bree's ear and about scares him to death. He goes, ah! And he jumps back, and he kind of runs to the far end of the orchard. And Aslan is standing there. And then when in Lewis's genius, when the other horse, trots up to La Aslan and bows its head against Aslan's face and says, you're so beautiful. I'd rather be eaten by you than fed by anybody else. One of the most amazing lines in all of Lewis's writings. I'd rather be eaten by you than fed by anybody else. 
She knows that Aslan is a ferocious lion, but there's goodness in him and beauty such that she'd rather be eaten by him than fed by anybody else. It's beautiful. That's the spirit of the fear of God. It's what Calvin said in a little book he wrote seven years after he'd been converted in 1529. He's now 1536. A little book he wrote called The Instruction of Faith, one of his first major writings. And in that book he writes, the fear of the, the, sorry, the gist of true piety, the sum and substance of true piety, does not consist in a fear that would gladly flee the judgment of God. That's, that's the way most people think of the fear of God. They're frightened of God's judgment. They want to be away from this ferocious God. No, no, it doesn't consist in that kind of a fear. But, Calvin says, in a true and pure zeal that loves God altogether as Father, reveres Him truly as Lord, embraces His justice, and dreads to offend Him more than to die. That's what David's saying here. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, and fear the Lord, you his saints. The fear of God is connected to the goodness of God. And it's the heart and soul of piety. And each verb leads to the next. Magnify the Lord. Get some idea in your head of how great God is. That'll lead to a taste in your soul, which will lead to fear in your heart, which will lead to a difference in your life. Come, ye children, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of day that he may see good? Keep your lips from evil and your tongue from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And the problem so many Christians have is they try to begin living the Christian life in verse 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. They try to live the life of God without first magnifying the glory of God in their minds tasting the goodness of God in their hearts and fearing that good God in their souls. And without those things, the Christian life becomes a, a, a weary, dreary list of do's and don'ts. And there's no power in it. There's no life in it. Maybe, maybe you're a young person here, and in your mind, you're thinking, because you, you aren't tasting God's goodness and magnifying it. God's small to you and trivial and boring. And so, you think the Christian life is all about not having sex till you get married. And that seems pretty boring, right? Because sex is good. And you think, my parents are stupid. I'm going to have sex now. It's wonderful, right? But you see, the problem, is, the problem isn't your view of sex. The problem is your view of God.
You're not tasting the sweetness of the God you designed. The delights of sex in a marriage were designed by the goodness of the genius of God. And when you taste of the goodness of God and His genius, His glory, His majesty, the God who speaks the universe into existence is the fountain of all good and blessing. Once you taste that goodness, then you realize He is so good, His his plan about sex cannot be bad, right? And that's true at every other area of life. It's our vision of God is the problem. And what we need is to fear Him, and then all of our other fears take their appropriate size. It's like Dr. Currid, my Hebrew professor at seminary, he told this story But his grandfather, who was a sailor, a a Navy sailor in the Second World War, and he was on a frigate, his grandfather was, escorting a merchant marine fleet across the Atlantic. And he was in the middle of this fleet, and there was a, he was in the frigate, and ahead of him was was a merchant vessel carrying ammunition, and behind him was another merchant vessel. And they're going, and they're being hunted by German U boats, of course. And immediately one of the lookouts cry out those, those awful words, torpedoes! off the port bow, and they look and they see these two white lines of death speeding toward the merchant marine vessel. They slam amidships into this vessel, hit the armory, the whole vessel explodes and sinks almost immediately with the loss of all hands on deck. And then the the vessel behind, another lookout cried out, um, torpedoes off the port stern, and they turn around and the, the torpedoes come in, hit the other boat, it explodes and sinks with the loss of almost all hands. And Dr. Kerr said to his grandfather, how do you feel? And Dr. Dr. Kerr was expecting his grandfather to be kind of like saying, I was standing on the, on the bridge like John Wayne, you know, unflapped, unflappable, unfazed, and the, the, saying to the German crowd, do your worst. Instead, he said, the old man looked at me and said, son, I was so scared that day. Nothing has ever frightened me again. And that's essentially what David's saying here. That the fear of God, not because he's scared of God blowing him up, but the goodness, the greatness of God and fearing Him has shrunk all of the other fears of my life down to size. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? Death. When you know God, when your sins have been forgiven, when Christ is your Savior, He walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death, and we fear no evil. For the Lord of death and the death of death walks with us. Because in the death of Christ, as John Owen says, we have the death of death. Death swallowed him and died in the process as the resurrection and the life broke the bonds of the grave for himself, but for all of God's children. And so, when you fear Christ, what is there to fear in death? Because death is simply a a channel to bring you closer to Christ. 
For the pagans, everything that fear and death is taking you away from God, away from light into the darkness, into the wrath of getting what you deserve forever. But for the Christian, Christ has got what I deserve forever, and death is bringing me to the Father's house. Whenever they were bringing Archbishop Hooper, I always forget, it's Hooper or Hooker, but anyway, one of the bishops um, who was who were butchered by Bloody Mary in the 1550s. And they, they brought him to his cathedral to burn him at the stake outside his cathedral. You can still see there's a monument to him today. And they, they took him to his cathedral, and there were all of his thousands of his congregants there to watch him being buried, burned at the stake. And as they're bringing him toward the stake, one of his, the, the sheriff of the town, who was a horrible man, said to Hooper, or Hooker, how do, you, how, how do you feel, sir? And the bishop said, never better. I have but two styles, styles two little wooden fences. That, that's, what, that's all he thought the, the, of, the, of the faggots to be burned on, wooden fences. I've got but two styles to get over, and I'll be at my father's house. That's death for a Christian. There's nothing to fear in it because there's everything of Christ in it. As David said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war rise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. It's amazing that it doesn't matter what's going on in David's life. He says, I sought the Lord and He answered me. That's amazing. David didn't seek deliverance. He didn't seek healing. He sought the Lord. It was more, it wasn't that I want less trouble in my life. I want more of you in my life, O God. And that's what we need as a congregation. We need more of God, more of Christ, more of the Holy Spirit. And it all begins in our mind as we magnify God in our mind. Do you remember in, in Isaiah's day, Israel are stuck up in exile, and they're pretty bitter, angry, frankly, disappointed with God. And God says to them in Isaiah 40, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Maybe that's you. Maybe you think, my life's not fair, and God doesn't care. And so many Christians, they become bitter and angry. My life's not fair, and God doesn't care. That's what the Jews were thinking. And the remedy for this was a renewed vision of God. Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will, will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. 
They need a, a renewed vision of God. And we need that in our own souls. We need that in our families too. The biggest problem in our families, my family, and I suspect your family is, we try to do the rules of Christianity without the glory of the God of Christianity. And it's a pretty wretched and boring affair. Some of you walk about with the facial ex expression of someone who's just bitten into a ripe lemon. You look, you, you sound like a vegetarian trying to describe the delights of a medium-rare filet mignon steak. person who doesn't like thrill rides on a zip line, saying we and trying to mean it. <laughs> and what you need, what we need in our families is more worship, more awe, more of a sense of the grandeur of God. Because as one man used to put it, Where's your joy gone? Because joy and God go together like water and wet. And our joy evaporates whenever we lose a vision of God. And everything in our lives becomes the wrong size and wrong shape. Like, look at the economy today. You watch Fox News, and it's, it's depressing. It's all men, what men are doing, what Biden's doing, what he's not doing. And it's just, it's really depressing. It, you, and, and I'm as bad. I'll talk about it. And you just feel the oxygen leaving the room because we're focusing upon what men are doing and not what God has done and who God is and what God has promised. And we need a resurgence of joy in a depressed economy. And you'll never find that looking down. You'll only find that looking up magnifying God, His glory, tasting His goodness, and then learning to fear that goodness and that strange dynamic of true fear, and then from that foundation, living that goodness in our lives. We'll come back and look at that more in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word, its truth, its power. Lord, give me, give my, my family, give my church family a taste of your goodness and your glory. We might delight in you, O God, the God who gave your Son to be our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.